Well, as I said earlier in the service, I was really uh, amazed last Sunday that um, I had to uh, make quick alternative plans because I got COVID and I had to stay home. And uh, I, I rang Don Stanley, who's on the desk there, and said, Don, would you be willing to preach? I think he thought, oh dear, what's the minister asking me to do? <laughs> yes, and yet when I listened at home last Sunday, I thought, wow, God, you are saying something to us. Do you know, and I'm going to encourage, I am going to promote a film. There's a film coming out at Easter called His Only Son. It's the story of Abraham. I watched it this week, a pastor's privilege of being able to see it. I guess it's because they want me to promote it to you, and I do want to promote it to you. It's an amazing story of Abraham, a reflection on his life, his journey of faith, which Don preached about last Sunday, and which Latchaw told us he was reading in his Bible uh, just before Don preached. Genesis 15. God speaks. He spoke to Abraham. He spoke to Nebo Jugadai. God is a living God and he gives his thoughts to his people concerning his plans, his desires. The Apostle Paul tells us in Colossians chapter 3, he says, Seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on things on earth. One of our greatest challenges in life is this. We are distracted by things in this world all the time, captured by what is going on in the world. Our lives are impacted. We get anxious over the financial markets. We become concerned about issues going on in South Africa right now. They're about to have a massive shutdown in their nation and a stirring up. We get concerned about these things. And they can so rule us that we forget when Jesus died on that cross... He gave you and me access to his Father. So you and I can have a personal relationship with a Father in heaven who has thoughts and plans and things he wants us to do. And there in the centre of Australia, an old man called Nebo Jugadai, who's now gone to be with the Lord, he would pray. And God gave him this vision. How do you feel about the cross on Memory Mountain when you see it? How do you feel as a Christian? You don't seem very excited. What? Well, you're not showing it. I think Lamb talked about that this morning. (laughs) That's amazing. And it truly is. Where on earth today would you find a country and governments and authorities approving such a religious symbol on an iconic mountain in the middle of the land? Where? Where where, where, where would it happen? (laughs) Nowhere except our country. Why? Because that was a vision from God. 
not just Nebo Jugadai. And we know now, as I said to the children, we know that was from God because it's actually come about in the most extraordinary way too. Now Nebo shared his vision. The cross was built after he died. He shared his vision. He wrote it down. Well, he wrote it down on the hearts of his people. He, he, he talked about it with them. And that little community continued to hold this vision as something God had placed on their hearts to do. I heard a very interesting response of a so-called Christian pastor who said, oh, it was a waste of money. They should have spent it on the poor. I thought it was just like Judas when, <laughs> when, when Mary was anointing the feet of Jesus with that costly ointment, failed to see the purpose of God in what was taking place. Well, today, I want to share with you a vision God has given me. Just like Nebo Jugadai. This vision is not only a vision that I have received, but actually many people have received a similar vision concerning this nation of Australia. Now, my vision started in the 1970s. I was a young person at school, madly keen on sport and success in the sporting world. And God stepped into my life and completely changed its direction. And here I am today, a pastor in his church. Who could have done such a thing? It's interesting that in the 1970s, God's Holy Spirit was working powerfully in two places, in the Solomon Islands in the Pacific and in South Africa, where I came from as a young child. And when I became a Christian, I came into the company of people who'd been involved in the outpouring of the Spirit in the Solomon Islands. And I was fascinated at what God could do. I heard amazing stories of his Holy Spirit working in the hearts of people, just as he had been working in my heart. And this book, which I think is there, Fire in the Islands, is a book that captured my attention. And I want to read to you just a a small portion of this. This is two missionaries talking with each other. During a long homeward journey, they talked about their own frustrations, a sense of defeat in the Christian life, their powerlessness and unbelief. Both felt compelled to spend time together to unburden themselves before God and to listen to him. The facade of make-believe had begun to be lifted. They were honest, really honest. Was there power in their lives? Was God really working, changing people around them? While they waited on God at Waisusu, every day life did not come to a standstill. Each morning and evening, they joined the two missionaries in talking over what God had been showing them. Others too came. There were interruptions. Someone 
with yours wanting an intravenous injection or the pastor from the mountains with problems to discuss, but no interruption cut across what God was showing them. He was in charge. Sitting on the bark-floored veranda, they discussed the problems of the district they both knew well. Great compassion came for the people in such need, and they wanted God to rule in the islanders' lives. But as they talked, it became clear to them that they needed to do, sorry, he needed to do that very thing in a much deeper way in their own inner lives. They saw that they themselves had been ignoring the sin of their own attitudes, such as rivalry, pride in its many forms, fear and unbelief regarding these things as unimportant and unavoidable. The Holy Spirit showed them clearly that these attitudes deeply grieved him and that Christ did have a way through of release, of forgiveness, of victory. It dawned on them that their own minds, independent of direction from God, ruled far too much in their day-to-day decisions and activities. This made them half deaf to God's voice and very often he had been unable to get through to them they began to see how much of their Christian activity was in the flesh for those who live as their human nature tells them to live have their minds controlled by what human nature wants those who live as the spirit tells them to live have their minds controlled by what the spirit wants In that shabby leaf house with two corners tied to coconut palms for support, they became aware of the holy presence of God. In his presence, they found that they had to be absolutely open. There could be nothing kept hidden. They had to be transparent before each other and before God. They began to hear the voice of Christ speaking in a way they had never experienced before. And their eyes were open to the possibilities of real and continuous walk in the spirit with God. Well, that was the beginning of a mighty work, an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Now, I became aware of these things and they stirred my heart. God, you want to do the same thing in my life and here in this land and these missionaries who came back from the islands had a sense of vision that God would work in this country of Australia. Well, God eventually called me into the ministry and he called me down here to Clayton. And I came into a church. I knew nothing about what was in the church. All sorts of things had come into the church that I didn't realise spiritual forces of evil that were corrupting people's thoughts the whole influence of freemasonry which in our country has been powerful in its spiritual blindness killing the life of the spirit in the in 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 the christian church but god in his grace has enabled us to address many of these issues by his spirit and you are here today in this church And I'm still here as minister, miraculously, I can tell you. Well, early on in my ministry, I became aware of the need to pray for Jews. I hope you're praying for Jews. Seriously, your best friend, if you're a Christian, is a Jew. His name is Jesus. He came for his own people. His own people didn't recognize him. 
But God has a heart to bring many Jewish people to know their true Messiah, the Lord Jesus. So I went to pray with a Christian missionary agency called Christian Witness to Israel, a little prayer meeting in Glen Huntley. And I met a lady there, Alina McKenzie from Scotland. And she asked me, who are you? I said, well, Michael Jensen, where do you come from? Well, I'm the Presbyterian minister in Clayton. No, 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 where do you come from? I said, well, uh, I was born in Sydney. I grew up in South Africa, and, and then I came back here to Australia and got converted. And South Africa, she said, have you heard about revival among the Zulus? I said, no, never heard about revival among the Zulus. Oh, you should hear about this, she said. Well... That lady I never saw for about six months until uh, at the end of the year, at Christmas time, a brown paper parcel arrived from the UK. Inside it was this book, Revival Among the Zulus. No letter, no greeting, just there from Alina McKenzie in Scotland, Revival Among the Zulus. I read this book. It was virtually a carbon copy of fire in the islands. But among the Zulus in South Africa where I grew up, in this book you'll read this account. The day came when God rent the heavens as it were and came down while we were gathered together. Now the preparation for this day was almost exactly the same as the preparation of the hearts of the men in the Solomon Islands. God searched their hearts until there was nothing in them corrupted and defiled that had not been confessed and and openly acknowledged. He prepared their hearts And Erlo Stegen, the leader of this mission, gives testimony of exactly the same process taking place in South Africa. And then he says, the day came when God rent the heavens, as it were, and came down while we were gathered together. Suddenly, we heard a noise like a great wind. I can only faintly suggest what happened and attempt to make it clear with a small example. It was similar to pressurised air escaping from an air pump And as if that wind were blowing right through every one of us, the Spirit of God came down and nobody had to explain to anyone, look, God is in our midst. They don't have to tell each other. God was there. Everybody was conscious of the presence of God without anybody saying a word. All I could do was to bow down and worship the God of heaven. What happened then? The Spirit of God came over that place, over the whole area and brought the people. The first person to come was a witch who had, seven, had, had lived seven kilometres away and was in charge of a training school for witches. God began at the very strongholds of Satan. To use the prophet Isaiah's words, the mountains flowed down at thy presence as when the melting fire burneth. The fire burned as if everything were made of dry brushwood. When I asked this witch, what is it you want? She asked, I need Jesus. Can he save me? I'm bound with chains of hell. Can he break these chains? I couldn't believe my eyes and ears. For 12 years, I tried in vain to convert witches, sometimes for weeks at a time. And they'd always claimed that their powers were a gift from God. And now suddenly, right out of the blue, a witch stood in front of me and told me that she was sick and tired of her life and was bound with chains of hell. Who spoke to you? I asked her. Nobody, she answered. Who preached to you? Nobody. 
Who invited you? Nobody. But I can't understand this. Where do you come from? What happened? Why do you ask me all these questions? Don't waste my time, she says. If Jesus doesn't save me right now, I will die today and go to hell. I had never seen the lights. I continued by asking, are you prepared to open your heart to the Lord Jesus and let him come into your life? I'm prepared to do anything, she said. Are you prepared to confess your sins? Yes. After she had done all that, she said, pray for me, that Jesus rids me of these evil spirits. Well, I could go on and she's set free from hundreds of demons who come out of this woman. And before she looked absolutely like an old lady and afterward her face was radiant like a young woman. This is our God that we worship here this morning. This is what he can do. I've had this in my heart for many years. It's never left me. I went to South Africa. I went to the mission. It started in a little cow shed. Now they have a building for 10,000 people. The most amazing things have taken place in this mission by a work of the Spirit of God moving in the hearts of people. Well, in addition to these things, I became conscious over the years of things in our own country. Do you know, interestingly, just as a sideline, right now God is raising up a young man here in Melbourne to take the gospel to the Jews. 20 years of prayer and Daniel Zunert, you'll see his picture with his family, is being raised up by God to take the gospel to Jews in Melbourne. And this young man has a passion for the Jewish people. Well, at the same time, I've been aware of movements in our country for prayer, for a work of the Spirit of God. The National Day of Prayer and Fasting. Warwick Marsh has been a key instrument in this. And uh, Shaminga's dad, actually, Ravi too, is very connected to the Day of Prayer and Fasting in this country for a work of the Spirit of God. Now, Warwick Marsh... In, before one of these uh, days of prayer and fasting, he gave this little story, which you're going to watch now. You listen to this. Oops, you're going to need the volume. When you fast. Jesus said in Matthew 17:21, this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. Let me tell you about a revival in Parramatta in 1840 that relied heavily on the power of prayer and fasting. John Watsford was a young 19-year-old Methodist lay preacher. Most of the revivals of history were led by young people. Watsford's conversion occurred in 1838. He attended a prayer meeting and became powerfully convicted about his sins. After the meeting, someone followed him. It was a leader from the church who said he had felt moved to ask Watsford to attend a new young men's class. This challenge caused him repeatedly to spend nights reading his Bible and earnestly praying for forgiveness. His distress deepened until, in desperation, he prayed, I cannot live another day like this. The load of sin is crushing me down to hell. Have mercy upon me and pardon all my sin for Jesus Christ's sake who shed his blood for me. In an instant... He saw the plan of his salvation. 
His sin had all been laid on Jesus. He trusted in Christ as his present saviour and the burden of his sins rolled away. His joy was very great. Baptised with the Holy Spirit, John Watsford said, I had a great longing to bring others to Jesus. I began by distributing tracts. He became a Sunday school teacher and in 1839 he began studying for the ministry as a lay preacher. John Watsford shares the story of the revival in Parramatta. Some of the local preachers and leaders in Sydney and Parramatta were men of great spiritual power, men who believed in prayer and fasting and who did not depend upon a stranger coming now and then to hold special services and bring sinners to Christ. They believed in the Holy Ghost and pleaded for his coming in connection with the ordinary services. As a result, there were showers of blessing and glorious revivals, wonderful displays of the Holy Spirit's power in convincing and saving men. We used often to see a whole congregation broken down and unable to leave the church and numbers night after night coming to the house of God and finding salvation. And this, no matter who was conducting the service. He then proceeds to give us some information about some of these events. The first revival in Parramatta that I know of was in 1840. Religion had been in a low state. The minister of the circuit was a good man, but old and nearly worn out. He was greatly opposed to noise and marked the men who were very much in earnest. It was the custom then to call by name a few persons to pray in the prayer meetings, and any who were at all noisy were never asked. (laughs) Two of our most excellent and devoted local preachers who were always seeking to save souls, were placed on the list of persons not allowed to take part in the prayer meetings. Very soon I was added to the number. (laughs) One day, the two brethren to whom I have referred said to me, we are going especially to pray for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and the revival of God's work, and we want you to join us. This is our plan. Every morning and evening, and at midday, to spend some time in pleading with God to pour out his Spirit to observe every Friday as a day of fasting and prayer, to sit together in the meetings and, though not permitted to pray aloud, silently to plead for the coming of the Holy Ghost. I think they were a little afraid of me as they gave me this caution. Now mind, you must not say a word against our minister or have any unkind feeling toward him because he does not allow us to take part in the meetings. He knows what he is doing and has his own reasons for it. If we complain or speak against him, the Lord will not hear our prayers. We carried out our plan for one, two, three weeks, no one but God and ourselves knowing what we were doing. At the end of the fourth week on Sunday evening, the Reverend William Walker preached a powerful sermon. After the service, the people flocked to the prayer meeting till the schoolroom was filled. My two friends were there, one on each side of me, and I knew they had hold of God. We could hear sighs and suppressed sobs all around us. The old minister of the circuit who had conducted the meeting was concluding with the benediction. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God. Here he stopped and sobbed aloud. When he could speak, he called out, Brother Watsford, pray. I prayed and then my two friends prayed and oh, the power of God that came upon the people who were overwhelmed by it in every part of the room. And what a cry for mercy. 
It was heard by the passers-by in the street, some of whom came running in to see what was the matter and were spitten down at the door in great distress. The clock of a neighbouring church struck 12 before we could leave the meeting. How many were saved, I cannot tell. Day after day and week after week, the work went on and many were converted. Among them were many young persons. John Watsford's story of revival in Parramatta in 1840 should inspire us all. God wants to move. We must pray and we must act. Thank you. We must pray. We must pray. I will guarantee this is the area of your life that is in greatest need. It's true in my life. Because the enemy of souls most powerfully opposes prayer. We have a lady here sitting right down near me, near Kim. She was declared dead, clinically dead, brain dead, in Royal Adelaide Hospital for 45 days. But her friends and her close relatives, they prayed. Did they pray? How did they pray? They went on praying and praying. And what happened with your sisters one day when God began to convict them of their attitudes towards each other and they began to confess their sins to each other and then they prayed and look at you now. (laughs) This is a God who raises the dead when his people truly pray. Well, just recently we've had... Uh, stories of events in the US in a place called Asbury. Asbury University, it's a Christian university in Kentucky. They've had uh, a heart for God for uh, decades. And just recently a movement of the Holy Spirit, I believe it is a genuine movement because of the lack of personalities other than Jesus being lifted up in this. And many people touched in their hearts, convicted of their sins, spending days unable to leave this place. God is moving. There was an incredible consciousness of his love in these meetings in in, uh, Asbury, Kentucky. At one time, there were 25,000 people. You'll see some of them on the lawns here. praying, drawn into the presence of God. Now, I'm not suggesting you go to Asbury. That's what people think. Oh, we're going to go to Asbury. No, you don't have to go to Asbury. What about Clayton? What about here? God is the same God of Asbury. He's the same God of of Melbourne, Victoria, Clayton. He's exactly the same. He doesn't change. He shows no partiality. The Bible tells us this. If my people who call by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face. That's a call of God to seek him earnestly. Then he says, and then turn from their wicked ways. You know, you have to seek God first. Don't think you can turn from your wicked ways until he shows you what they are. It might be an attitude of heart as our brother or dear friend Neville 
last year felt God convict him about an attitude towards Alex? What was the outcome of it? Incredible love released. We felt the impact of it ourselves. God is wanting to do a mighty work and he's going to do it. You're not going to stop him. You might miss out, but you're not going to stop God. God is going to do this because he has said so. You know, the wonderful blessing of the heart's bluff uh, community and the raising of this cross, Nebo Jugadai's vision of the cross at heart's bluff is a reminder to us that when God speaks, he will do what he says. Do you know Ken Duncan, when he, he became connected with this particular proposal, uh, he wrote this, he came into contact in 2009 with the residents of Hearts Bluff, 230 kilometres west of Alice Springs. The 20 metre high multi-million dollar steel monument was a, a project that seemed overwhelming. The magnitude of the project, Ken prayed and asked God for help. Instantly, Ken felt at peace. And this is, by the way, this is a report from the ABC. This is the ABC writing this report. Listen to this. Instantly, Ken felt at peace, and over the following weeks, God began to unfold his strategy to raise funds for the cross. The report says the site, that's uh, the uh, Walkerwild site, said God showed Ken that he would face opposition to building the cross. If this is as important as we believe it to be, and indeed part of the coming revival, then there will be spiritual warfare. On the website, God is quoted as saying to Mr. Duncan, I don't want just you and your indigenous friends to build the cross. I want the body of Christ to build it. This raising of the cross will unite the army of the Lord into action. You will need some strong centurion soldiers to walk with you. And they have been praying all through this time for the completion of this work. Now, I was up at Harrietville in Victoria and I met with an indigenous man called Noel and he hadn't heard fully about the cross himself. And I showed him the picture and as soon as he saw this picture, he said, there's an anointing on this, there's an anointing. Because God is in this. God is the one that laid the vision. God is the one who's accomplished this purpose. Now, at the same time, Warwick Marsh and Kurt Molberg have just finished this book, Great Southland Revival, which is tracing the Spirit's flame from Acts in the, in the, in the book of Acts to Australia and recounting some of the revivals that uh, Warwick Marsh referred to there in Parramatta and others. All these events at the moment and an increasing emphasis on prayer amongst believing Christians have enabled the vision of revival to be handed down from generation to generation and today we see events taking place that encourage us to recognise the hand of God upon this. Well, I want to now quickly turn to you turn with you to the passage in the New Testament in Luke chapter 11. 
This is probably one of the most significant chapters and sections in the teaching of Jesus. Why do I say that? Well, it's this. Luke records, now Jesus was praying. Jesus had to pray. Jesus had to pray? He was God. No, but he was fully man like us. And he had to pray. How long did Jesus pray? Remember I said a few weeks ago, a minister came into this church once and said, a short prayer is a good prayer. Well, he's completely wrong. Jesus prayed all through the night. Jesus gave himself to seek his father. And Jesus was praying in a certain place. And when he'd finished, the disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. This is one of the most significant things Jesus can teach you to do, to pray. To pray like Jesus prays. Notice the disciples says, as John taught his disciples. Notice John taught his disciples to pray. You know, there's not much record of that, is there? But John taught his disciples to pray. Why do you think John did that? Because John was a man of prayer. And Jesus says to them, when you pray, when you pray, say, Father. When you pray, say, Father, Abba. Is God your Father? Is he truly your father? Are you born again of his spirit? Have you come into a relationship with the living God of the universe where you are his child? Where you are totally dependent on him? Apart from him, actually, you can do... What was that? I didn't hear that, sorry. Thank you. Just remember that. You can do nothing. We're very proud, aren't we? We don't realize just how deep our pride is. We don't realize just how independent we are. And Jesus had to pray all night because he was totally dependent on his father. In fact, he said, the words that I speak to you are the words the father gives me to speak. I can say nothing except what the father gives me to say. Just think of how many things we say that haven't come from God. Father, hallowed be your name. Father, you are the most wonderful father. Is that how you approach God? Father, you are all that I need. Your name, your character is revealed in the scriptures and through your son Jesus. Jesus said, if anyone has seen me, he's seen the Father. Do you remember Jesus? I love the pictures of Jesus with little children. What's he like? That's what he's like with you and me. That's what God is like with us. He loves us to come and curl up in his lap and say, Father, I need you. Father, I can't do anything without you. 
He just loves us to say that. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. The first petition that you are to pray is for the kingdom of God to come. How does the kingdom of God come? There is only one way now that the kingdom of God comes. It's through the Holy Spirit. That's the only way. The kingdom of God comes through the Holy Spirit. You'll see at the end of the passage, of course, Jesus ends this whole teaching about prayer with one statement. How much more will your heavenly Father give? I can't hear. To those who ask him. How much more, he says. The first petition we are to pray is, your kingdom come. You know those three men who prayed in Parramatta? They were praying quietly in the meeting. What were they praying for? The kingdom of God to come. I love what those two men said to John Watsford. You're not to speak a word against the minister. Now, I'm not suggesting you shouldn't correct me if I'm doing something wrong or come and suggest something, but attitudes of heart are incredibly destructive to the influence of the Holy Spirit. And I'm certainly not perfect. None of us are perfect here. Jesus is the only perfect one. But God puts people in authority. Every person in authority has been placed there by God. Your boss at work, your parents at home, your elder, your ministers, your, your prime minister. Every single person has been put there by God. How do we respond to that? The petition goes on. Give us each day our daily bread, which really is saying you need to pray every day. You can't ask God to give you something for tomorrow. Well, not exactly, but he's saying you can't, you're going to need to ask God every single day to provide for you. Is that the way we're living? And forgive our sins, particularly our sin of independence, of pride. Forgive us. As we ourselves forgive everyone who's indebted to us, if you are harboring any unforgiveness in your heart towards anybody, be careful, your prayers are hindered. Because when Jesus died on the cross, he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And when people harm us and and act in ways that, that affect us badly, largely they don't know what they're doing. We have to forgive And lead us not into temptation. Then Jesus tells a story. Now, immediately after teaching the kind of things we're to pray for, he says this. 
He said to them, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. Now, have you had people come to your house or in contact with them and, and you're a Christian and you know Jesus Christ, but somehow you don't have anything to share with them of the gospel, of the wonder of your salvation and you find flat and empty. Have you ever had that happen to you? Oh man, that has happened to me so many times. You see, we have people all around us who are in desperate need of salvation. They need to know Jesus Christ as their saviour or they're going to hell. And they come up to us in the supermarkets. They come up to us in our neighbourhoods. And we have nothing to share. Of course you've got nothing to share because you need the kingdom of God to come upon you in order to share the things of God. You can't do it in your own strength. You need God to fill you with his spirit, enabling you to do what he wants you to do. And Jesus is telling the story, friend, lend me three loaves. I've got this friend on a journey. I need to feed them with something of worth. And he will answer from within, don't bother me. The door is shut. My children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. Why does Jesus tell this story in relation to prayer? Because you and I know that when we pray, sometimes it feels like the door is shut. Nothing is happening. You're not listening, God. And at that point, it's easy to say, oh, I give up. But Jesus is saying, don't give up. There is an enormous spiritual battle, actually, over the provisions of God coming to you and me. An enormous spiritual battle. You would understand the spiritual battle I've had coming here today. I can tell you there is an enormous spiritual battle over what I'm sharing with you today. Because God is purposing to send revival to this country, but he needs a people who will pray for this revival. Jesus says, I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend. You know, we said, what a friend we have in Jesus. We sang that this morning. But not because he's our friend will he get up. And give us what we need. He says this. But he will give him what he needs because of his boldness. His impudence. His importunity. His refusal. To accept no. The door is shut. Now that... That, that is an instruction about praying. Remember, Jesus has been asked by the disciples, teach us to pray. And how Jesus is teaching them to pray. I've had many times in prayer, friends, where it seems like everybody around me is, oh, just stop praying, Michael. Just, just keep quiet. We've had enough of that. Let's get on to something else. Well, I was the same attitude of a lady who came to Bible study called Chris O'Brien. She used to come to Bible study, and at the end of Bible study, she'd start praying for children to come to church. And she went on and on and on and on. And we sat there thinking, oh, come on, Chris. You know, you pray. That's enough. 
It went on five, ten minutes. But do you know what happened? About a hundred children came to this church. What has your attitude been towards people who go on and on in prayer when you come to church on Sunday? When you're in a prayer meeting? No. Jesus says, because of your impotence, because of your importunity, because you will not give up, he will give you what you need. I tell you, ask. It'll be given to you. Well, we ask God. Sometimes it doesn't seem the answer's coming. Well, we ask again. Because then he says, there's a process here in, in prayer. Asking first, seeking second, knocking third. Asking is like bringing your petitions to God. Seeking is seeking him. Because maybe your petition needs correction. Maybe it needs to be moulded and shaped according to his will. Until you're praying like Nebo Jugadai with a prayer that there will be a cross on this mountain because God, you have given this to me in my heart. I know this is your will. I will go on praying until this happens. And he probably died praying for that to happen. And now he's in heaven rejoicing. We need to seek God. We need to be in close fellowship with God, to be praying in in line with his will and purpose. And he will reveal his will and purpose to you if you seek him. Remember the memory verse from last Sunday? I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans for welfare, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. And then the next verse says, then you will come to me, you will pray to me, and you will seek me and find me when you seek for me with all your heart. I will be found by you, says the Lord. Ask, seek, and then knock. You don't knock on open doors, do you? Do you? Sometimes you do. But usually it's closed doors you knock on. And this refers to the importunity of this man. He will not stop knocking until the friend gets up out of bed and opens the door and gives him what he needs. And the interesting thing about knocking is when we start to do this, we know the right door to knock on. When we start doing this truly, we know which door to knock on. You don't go to some strange idol to pray. You go to the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the door. The Lord Jesus said, I am the door. You knock on me. You you knock on me until I answer your prayer and open the door. And then Jesus ends this passage by saying, for everyone who asks receives, the one who seeks finds, and he who knocks, it will be opened. And he says, what father among you? And I've had five children and I love all of them dearly. And I could certainly identify with this. What father among you? 
if his son asks for a fish, will give him a serpent. Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion. And we're sinners. We don't love our children as much as God does. Just remember that, parents. You do not love your children as much as God does. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, if you know how to give the best things to your children, the things that will be really valuable to them, then Jesus says this, how much more will your heavenly Father give Sorry, I can't hear. You need to speak up. The Holy Spirit to those who ask him. Are you asking? You know, people talk about, uh, are you baptized with the Spirit? Well, maybe you are. But let me tell you, you need to keep asking. Because the Apostle Paul says, you need to be go on being filled with the Spirit every single day. That's according to this prayer. Give us each day our daily bread, what we need for today. Friends, I would like to see every one of us at the 6am prayer meeting. That might be a bit tough for you. But that prayer meeting was started because of this vision. I'd like to see you all at the 8pm prayer meeting. Prayer is the most important thing we do. The, the apostles in the book of Acts, when they were presented with needs in the church community, in Acts 6 verse 4, they appointed others, deacons, to do that work. And they said, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. Friends, I believe God is purposing to send revival to this country, but he needs a people who believe what he says in his word in relation to prayer who will take hold of what his instructions are and will see God come down as he has promised. Let's pray.